All right, this episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Super cool Squarespace. Uh, actually, they're not sponsoring this particular episode, but they sponsor some episodes, and I get confused as to which ones they sponsor and which ones they don't. So I'm just going to say this one's sponsored by Squarespace. If if it's not, they get a freebie. Uh, and here's the thing. Because Duncan and... Um, Joe Rogan made fun of my Squarespace code, my discount code. They agreed to change it. So it's no longer tangent one or two or whatever it was. Now the discount code coming from me is sex, S-E-S, uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to spell sex. S-E-X, that is sex. So if you sign up with Squarespace, use the discount code sex. And you will get 10% off. Super cool. Uh, my site is built on Squarespace. I built it myself. It's easy peasy. Uh, anyone can do it. They've got great templates. They've got amazing customer service. They're based in New York. Joe met the entire Squarespace staff uh, when he was in New York a few weeks ago. And he said they are just like you would hope they are. They're Cool, hip, young, great, energetic, and they're doing something uh, interesting, making it easy for you and yours to have your very own website. We, uh, My website is probably a little more complicated than most because I'm posting videos, I'm selling t-shirts, I'm, you know, there's all there's the commerce thing going on, there are all sorts of things going on, but it's all really easy. Um, so I, I encourage you, if you want to set up a, a website, check out Squarespace, squarespace.com discount code sex, S E X also brought to you by the ever wonderful short design t-shirts. I just placed a massive order. Um, uh, we're going to have sex at dawn hoodies soon. We're going to have ladies, sexy tank tops. We're got a whole new line of shirts coming in. Um, with a design by Bruno, Bruno, whose last name I don't remember, uh, but he's very cool. Hold on, let me, I'll press pause and find Bruno's name. Bruno, yes, Bruno Guerrero, I believe that's pronounced. He's a uh, art director at Decibel Magazine, and he got in touch a little while ago, and uh, we sort of went back and forth with some ideas, and then he, he sent me a uh, really cool image of a chimpanzee dressed in a suit and tie with a Big Mac and a Coke and an iPhone and under it says civilized to death. So we're going to have t-shirts, civilized to death t-shirts before I'm even really writing that damn book. So I don't know. We got the, the horse, the cart before the horse here, but that's cool. Anyway, if you want to check out his stuff, you can follow Bruno on Twitter. He's Bruno F Sky. Bruno F. Sky, Instagram, same thing, Bruno F. Sky. And his website is brunofsky.prosite.com. So you can check him out. He'll, I think he's got the uh, the design up on his site if you want to take a look at that. And what else? Uh, I wanted to thank... Oh, hold on. I have to delete that. Sorry, this is not very professional. John Suozzi, who sent me uh, a donation. Thank you, John. Thank you, everyone else who sent me emails and... Uh, supported us through by using our Amazon affiliate link. Just got a nice little bump from Amazon, so somebody's been doing that. I appreciate it, even though it's anonymous, or maybe especially because it's anonymous. I appreciate that. That's uh, very cool. And if you haven't seen it, my TED Talk finally went up. The much maligned, much discussed TED Talk that I gave uh, 51 weeks ago finally went up. So... Went up Thursday. Today's Monday. Let me do a quick check here. Uh, 407,000 views since Thursday. So there you go. What's that? Four or five days, something like that. Uh, almost half a million views. And then it's on YouTube as well. So it's racking up views there, which counts separately, I guess. So it looks like this one's going to, you know, it'll hit a, a million views in a, a week or two, which is pretty cool. Very cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's strange, strange to see myself there on the Ted stage. Uh, and you probably know the story of the, the tension and the awkwardness and the strangeness. Uh, I didn't get to show my favorite slide in that 
presentation, which is the one of, uh, it's got a, a gorilla in one corner, a chimpanzee in the other corner, and in the middle, it's got a friend of mine. Um, so the, the gorilla is lying on his back in a, in a sunlit field in, in a zoo in uh, Holland. I took the picture, beautiful spring day. He's lying on his back and you can see like there is, you know, nothing there. There's a tiny nub where the penis should be, right? So it's demonstrating how small his package is. And then in the other corner, you've got a bonobo, a shot I took in the same zoo, by the way. Uh, the zoo where Franz Duval did a lot of work before he went to Yerkes in Georgia. But anyway, I took a picture of that bonobo and he's got massive balls. And then in the middle is this friend of mine, Viram, who may be listening if you are. Hey, Viram. Uh, and uh, he's sitting in a, in a hammock in India wearing this tiny little bikini. And he's got uh, pretty big balls, Viram. And so this is after like a lot of theory I give in the talk, you know, the different testicular volume and blah, blah, blah. So this is to sort of like bring it home, right? There's the slide of the gorilla, the bonobo and Viram, and it's labeled gorilla, bonobo, Italian. And that always gets a big laugh. And, but the day before my TED presentation, when I was doing the dress rehearsal, they they decided that that was too too uh, what they say creepy, uh, and they were afraid Italians would be offended. So I don't know how you offend an Italian by saying he's got big balls. Uh, it seems to me that's a compliment to most of the Italians I've known. You know, I mean Tony Soprano, he's got big balls, man. That's not an insult, you know. Anyway, uh, the people at TED thought it was, so they made me take it down, which kind of bummed me out, and uh, hence the drama around. Part of the drama around the TED thing. Anyway, it seems to be getting lots of views, so I hope the people at TED are happy, and uh, I'm happy, and I hope you're happy. This episode is uh, with Cindy Gallup, who I actually met at that TED thing, so there's some appropriateness to this. She's a very interesting woman. She used to run a big advertising uh, company. She, um, you know, she's one of these sort of high-powered, take charge, you know very professional perfectionistic kind of people and you'll hear in the in the podcast we did the the interview in her apartment and i'm really glad we did because her apartment is one of the most interesting spaces i've ever been in it's a phenomenal place i talk in the in the conversation about some of the things that I see on the table in front of us and on the walls. It's it's a pretty amazing place. Anyway, so I hope you enjoy this conversation with Cindy Gallup. Her site, as you'll hear, is makelovenotporn.com. Go there. You can see she's got this whole thing set up. Very cool uh, effort to humanize porn, um, which is very topical because I'm speaking to you right now from my friend Andrew's place. And uh, Andrew does, uh, among other things, he does um, porn. Uh, he directs and produces porn for uh, the Adam and Eve company. And his project is to humanize porn, to re-eroticize porn, because it's become so explicit and so in-your-face, literally, that it's lost its eroticism. It's lost its appeal. You know, it's the difference between making love by candlelight and making love under fluorescent lights on a, you know, steel table so that absolutely everything can be seen from every angle. It's not sexy anymore. And I think, I think he's right about that. I think Cindy Gallup's right about that. And in their own ways, they're both working to try to eroticize, re-eroticize porn, humanize it, and, uh, you know, pull it back from the, the Oculus Rift artificiality, you know, high-tech sex doll direction that it often seems to be going. So I certainly support their efforts. In fact... I have just agreed to be in Andrew's next movie. Now, don't worry. I will be fully clothed. Uh, I'll be sitting at dinner, talking at a dinner table, talking with various um, people who have written books. I think um, I think the author, one of the authors of uh, 
Um, the ethical slut will be there. Um, and he's, uh, I don't want to give it away, but because he's still talking to people, but there'll be five or six relatively well-known sexual authorities or something sitting at the table chatting about, you know, what's going on with sex and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, it'll just be a, a sort of an interlude in this movie. His last movie, uh, which is called, what is it called? Open, I think, uh, about, um, an open, couples that have open relationships in San Francisco is the best selling porn movie for like the last four years since it came out. It's uh, a classic. It's uh, and it's actually kind of a cool movie. It's, you know, he's, it's almost documentary in a way. It's like a sexy documentary about this subculture in San Francisco. Anyhow, uh, check it out. Maybe I'll, I'll, set up a thing to sell the movie through my website or something. I don't think I can though. Cause I think it's owned by private. Anyhow, Cindy Gallup, make love, not porn. Enjoy the conversation. I am leaving in about an hour to go interview the great Mary Roach here in Berkeley, California, uh, author of gulp and bonk and, uh, packing for Mars and all these other crazy great books. So I'm really looking forward to that. Hope you enjoy this conversation and uh, thanks, as always, to Carsey Blanton for that funky, wonderful theme song, Smoke Alarm. Ciao. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Okay, I'm here with Cindy Gallup in her bloody incredible apartment in is this Chelsea? Yes it is, yeah. yes. Yeah, across, well across from the near the Chelsea Hotel. I mean, this is an amazing apartment. This is one of the few times frankly doing a podcast where I wish it were a video podcast so that you could see this place. <laughs> Listeners, you should be watching instead of listening in this case. This is a really amazing place. I took a few pictures with Cindy's permission. I'll put a few of them up on the website so you can see what I'm talking about. It's full of amazing Art of many different styles, uh, stuffed animals with golden horns. <laughs> I mean, the table in front of us is a mongoose and a cobra, I believe, uh, locked in battle. Uh, there's a what appears to be an ancient phallus. Uh, from, where is that from? Um, that's from the um, Antiques Market in Shanghai. So that's Chinese. That is the biggest Chinese. That is the biggest penis in China. <laughs> <I'm going> to... <laughs> Antique Chinese dildo. <laughs> I, but, you know, you wouldn't want your wife to use a dildo like that. Uh, or maybe you would. I don't know. I don't know. And then uh, and then I see a tile here that's the same mongoose and snake. I mean, um, yep. Th- that was done by a couple of um, creative guys um, who used to work for me at the ad agency I used to run. And they came around for a visit and enjoyed it so much they actually um, redrew the mongoose and cobra and gave it to me framed as a little thank you. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Well, anyway, we could spend, we could easily spend an hour just, you know, in one tiny corner of this apartment. This is one of the most spectacular living spaces I've ever seen. It's really, anyway, so let's talk about you. Enough about your apartment. Let's talk about you. So I know you uh, from your TED Talk. I think a lot of people probably heard about you through that and your website, which is makelovenotporn.com or org. Uh, d- uh, dot com, um, dot yeah, com. And, and now dot tv oh okay great great so you're are you branching out into a tv are you a multimedia magnate at this point oh, d- oh, oh you don't know where i took make love not porn then no oh, tell us okay you, good you let's are, start i've got to tell you your fingers off the pulse uh, I, <laughs> there are too many damn pulses for me I, i've got right. f- too few fingers for all the pulses out there at this point yeah <laughs> so bring us up bring me and our readers our listeners up to date sure so um uh, Make Love Not Porn originally um, 
derived from direct personal experience. So, um, um, as you'll know, um, I date younger men, um, predominantly men in their 20s, and I realised six years ago that I was encountering an issue that would never have crossed my mind if I had not encountered it very intimately, which is what happens when two things converge, when today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex, Um, the convergence of those two things results in porn becoming, by default, the sex education today in not a good way. And so I found myself encountering a number of sexual behavioural memes, if you like. I went, whoa, I know where that behaviour is coming from. If I'm experiencing this, other people will be as well, and I wanted something about it. So I put up, on no money, um, five years ago, uh, makelovenotporn.com, which is a very basic, minimal site that posts the myths of hardcore porn and balances them with the reality. The construct is porn world real world. Um, I had the opportunity to launch it at TED and I took a deliberate decision to be very explicit in my TED talk because I knew that audience wouldn't get this issue unless I was very straightforward about it. Did you have any trouble with TED? Were they nervous about you being explicit? Um, uh, um, No, because they had no idea I was going to be. (laughs) Was this a TEDx or the... Um, No, um, no, this was uh, was a TED in 2009. Uh But um, I was one of the um, audience um, speakers. Oh, right. Um, Those short talks. That's right. In between the schedules. Oh, nice. So you didn't have to go um, through the... I didn't have to do the (laughs) the rehearsal thing. Good for Um, you. But but, but as a result of that, um, the talk went viral. And it drove an extraordinary response to Make Love Not Porn. And the most extraordinary thing was not simply um, huge amounts of traffic, uh, because I put the website up and I left it to itself. I I didn't do anything to promote it. But every single day for the past five years, um, I get emails to my Make Love Not Porn inbox, and I get them from everyone, young and old, men and female, straight and gay, from every country in the world. And even before the actual website that I put up there, what amazes people is simply the fact that I stood on the stage in public and I talked about and I'm doing something about what everybody knows but nobody ever speaks about. And as a result, people feel able to tell me anything. Hmm. They pour their hearts out to me on email. They tell me things about their sex lives and their porn-watching habits they've never told anybody else before. They write for advice. And it was a cumulative impact of those emails day after day after day that began making me feel that I had a personal responsibility to take this venture forwards in a way that would make it more far-reaching, helpful and effective. So what I did was... Um, I I often have to emphasise to people that Make Love Not Porn is not anti-porn. The issue we're tackling isn't porn. We're tackling this complete absence in our society of an open, healthy, honest, truthful conversation around sex in the real world, which, if we had it, would, amongst many other benefits, also mean that people would bring a real-world mindset to the viewing of what's essentially artificial entertainment. Our entire message boils down to talk about it. Talk about sex openly and honestly in the public domain and talk about it openly and honestly privately in your intimate relationships. So, yeah. so, so what I decided to do was to take every dynamic that exists out there in social media currently and apply them to the one area that no other social media platform will go, which is sex. So our mission is to socialise sex and to make real-world sex socially acceptable and therefore just as socially shareable as anything else we currently share on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram. So seven months ago in public beta, my team and I launched MakeLoveNotPorn.tv. MakeLoveNotPorn.tv is a an entirely user-generated crowdsource platform where anybody from anywhere in the world can submit videos of themselves having real-world sex. So this is MakeLoveNotPorn.com brought to life, if you like. We explain what we mean by real-world sex. This is not performative. This is not about performing for the camera. It's just about capturing what goes on in the real world in all its funny, messy, ridiculous, silly, beautiful, wonderful, glorious humanness. I and my team curate. So this is not you porn, you know, um, Pornhub, XTube, where anybody can upload anything. Um, we view every video to make sure it's real-world sex. And we have a revenue-sharing business model. So you pay to rent real-world sex videos, and 50% of that income goes to you, our contributor, or as we like to call you, our 
Make love, not porn star. <laughs> Make love, not porn star. I like that. So uh, now, is the, is the money pooled, or it's it's per click or per uh, view? Uh, uh, to uh, the- it's per. Um, you pay five dollars to rent each real world sex video um, for three weeks, during which uh, time okay. you can watch it as often as you like. I see. And, the, and, and then half of that um, goes to the whoever sent it in. Yeah. Well, that's a that's an interesting business model. Well, I um, one of my passions as a business consultant is inventing new business models and I design the business models of my startups around my own personal philosophies and beliefs so I believe that everybody should realise the value of what they create and I feel that particularly strongly because my background is theatre and advertising two industries where ideas and creativity are massively undervalued even by the creators themselves Uh and so I believe that if you create something that gives other people pleasure you should absolutely see a financial return on it. And the more people you give more pleasure to, um, the greater the financial return should be. So actually, our business model with Make Love Not Porn is the opposite of the porn industries. Because in the porn industry, um, when you um, you know, t- um, uh, film a porn scene, um, and th- this is true whether you are you know, somebody new to the industry or a very well-known porn star, you get paid by the scene, which can range from a few hundred dollars at the low end to a thousand dollars pretty much max at the high end that scene will go on to be viewed billions of times on Brazzers, Naughty America, wherever and the porn stars will never see a penny of that which is why they have to supplement their income with live camming, dancing, escort work So there's no back end for the porn stars? No, and and with our model, the more people who enjoy your real world sex, the more money you make So we're seven months old in public beta we have over 150,000 members Um, we've taken in tens of thousands of dollars in revenue so in a world where there is wisdom is nobody pays for porn they're paying for real world sex and several of our make love not porn stars are already making four figures at each payout wow all right that's uh, each payout is monthly um, no it's quarterly um, we operate a 90-day accounting 90 day. Uh, so, so once right, in three months right wow that's fantastic yeah i, I know there's some but I don't want to say it's funny how everyone in porn is a porn star. You know, you, you don't hear about porn actors. Mm. Right? Um, but uh, I know there are some people uh, I don't remember the names right now, but I remember some people who sort of early in the Internet porn thing, like couples who set up their own website and say, OK, look, it's just us and it's always going to be just us, but in different scenarios and whatever. And we're a couple and the money goes directly to us. And there's so it's sort of uh, it's sort of like you've you've taken that and given people a platform to do that. Well, um, I'll I'll tell you what's interesting about what we're doing that's different from that. Hmm. Um, So what we say is that we're not porn, we're not amateur, we're real-world sex. Right, there's a difference, yeah. yeah. And um, I'll give you a few examples of what I mean by real-world sex. And I stress the word example because the whole point about this is we're putting this platform out there and we haven't the faintest idea what's going to come back. You, the world, you, our community, show us what real-world sex is. We don't dictate it. So is it all, sorry to interrupt you, is it primarily heterosexual or do do, you have whatever? fully inclusive. Okay, good. Again, we're tiny. We're only seven months old. We welcome everybody. As long as it's real. As long as it's real. Right. Um, so, so I mean, here are some examples of, of, of what I mean. So, real-world sex is funny. If you can't laugh at yourselves when you're having sex, when can you? Porn-world sex is not funny. Porn has parodies, but the sex in them is, is in deadly earnest. One of the reasons we're doing this is that we want to reassure people the same shit happens to all of us. Because we don't talk about it. Instead, we go, mm. oh, my God, what happened last night was so excruciating, embarrassing. I can never speak about this to anybody ever. Mm. So, for example, you know, the total nightmare putting the condom on. Guys always meant to know how to do the magic. As we all know, it does not happen like that. When it doesn't happen like that, things go soft, juices dry up, encounters get derailed. Queefing, fanny farts. Everyone doesn't love to be ashamed of. We, we want a category that's a section from America's Funniest Home Videos. Uh-huh. Because when people film themselves having sex, you never see the outtakes. Yeah. There's a market for that. So imagine the sex equivalent of Charlie Bit My Finger, which has now had over 500 million views on YouTube. Oh, imagine God. the appeal of something as funny, spontaneous, and human. Uh but in the sex context, for real. Then real-world sex is messy. So it always amuses me when people talk about porn as being dirty because porn actually sanitizes sex. Mm. Porn's very clean. In porn, nobody has hair. You never see anybody using lube, even though they get through gallons on set. You never see any of those nice, messy things that happen in real-world sex. So we want categories like period sex. 
Uh-huh. Don't see that in porn. Uh-huh. Um, we welcome, you know, the hottest, most arousing real-world sex content. That is sex during a period. Blood everywhere. No big deal. <laughs> this is what happens in the real world. Then, um, very importantly, uh, real-world sex is or should be responsible. So in porn, either there are no condoms or all of a sudden the condom's on. Jump cut, they're fucking, where'd that come from? So we invite the hottest, most arousing real-world sex content that competes to eroticise condom usage. What's the hottest, most arousing way? You can introduce a condom into the action, put it on, take it off, dispose of it. I have sex with condoms all the time. I want to watch my kind of sex, but I particularly want creative ideas for those awkward condom moments that we all go through. And if more of us had more creative ideas on how to make those awkward condom moments hot and arousing, there'd be a lot more safe sex happening, a lot less STDs and a lot less unwanted pregnancies. We see a huge gap in the market between porn with no condoms and sex ed in the classroom, roll the condom over the banana, it's all about preventing death, disease, destruction. We want to introduce a new socio-cultural meme into the market, which is condom hot. Mm. Make condom hot love not porn. Not only do condoms not get in the way of great sex, they can be an integral part of great arousing real-world sex. Mm. So, so those are just some examples, as I say. But, um, you know, those are things that you will not see um, in many other places yeah. Um, o- online. Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of anywhere you'd see something like that. So, so let's uh, let's get, go back uh, a bit and figure out how you got here. You know how how did you end up here? Or not end up, but uh, you know, so far in this amazing place and doing this kind of work. I mean, it sounds like you your your background's in theater and advertising. You said. Are, oh, well, my background uh, predominantly is twenty eight years spent working in brand building, marketing, and advertising. Uh huh. In, in London, in New York? Uh, um, so I began, um, I began uh, working in advertising in London. Mm-hmm. I worked for several agencies there. And then in 1989, I joined an advertising agency called Bartle Bogle Hegarty, BBH. And I ran big global pieces of business um, out of BBH London, um, worked on Coca-Cola, Ray-Ban, Polaroid. I moved to Singapore in 96 to help start up and run BBH Asia Pacific. Mm. And the reason I'm here in New York is I came here in 98 to open up um, the U.S. office um, uh-huh. for BBH, and uh-huh. I, I ran that for a number of years. Uh, okay, and then you you uh, took your money and ran. Uh, well, well, well. Sadly, um, t- uh, there wasn't any taking of money. But because, <laughs> no? because I have to tell you, um, the, um, the the era when you could make big money in advertising is well and truly over. Oh, I, really? I, I was over before I got there. Really? Yep. Yep. Even opening the New York office, I oh, would d- think oh, that uh, would be. A... Yeah. Um, no, uh, no, I'm afraid not. Wow. Um, I, I did that for BBH, so it wasn't my own startup. Right. Um, and and there were no no benefits in in doing that oh. over and above my salary. Wow. Um, and and so the reason um, the reason actually I um, jumped ship was I turned 45 back in 2005 and. I had my very own personal midlife crisis um, in the sense that I'd always thought of 45 as kind of a midlife point. So in, in a couple of years running up to it, I'd thought on one's 45th birthday is the moment when you should pause, take stock, reflect, mm. review, where have I been, where am I going? <laughs> so on February 1, 2005... Is that your birthday? It is indeed. Ah, yep, Aquarius. Both Aquarius. Uh-huh, there you go. Yeah. Signed to be. You, me, and Darwin. Yeah. Oh, right. Well, and Lincoln. Fantastic. Yeah. Even better. <laughs> So, um, so I basically, you know, paused and took stock. And that was the point at which I went, oh, my God, I've just worked 16 years for the same advertising agency. Wonderful agency. Love them to death. Cannot say enough nice things about them. But I thought, you know, I think it might be time to do something else. And then the problem was I hadn't the faintest idea what. So vast amounts of thought and angsting ensued. And eventually I went, if I want to review every possible option open to me for what is effectively the second half of my life. Maybe the best thing to do is to put myself on the market very publicly and go, OK, guys, here I am. What do you got? And see what comes. So I took a massive leap into the unknown. I resigned as chairman of BBH um, back in the summer of 2005 without a job to go to. And I have to say, deeply unnerving though that was, it was the best move I ever made with my life. Um, I couldn't be happier doing what I'm doing now. I'm reinventing myself in every possible way, including financially. I am, you know, no longer high-flying, highly paid ad exec. I'm an impoverished startup entrepreneur. But I am now evangelical about working for yourself because Mm. I believe that that is the only way to be. Mm. And, um, And so I've ended up completely accidentally.
accidentally, um, with two early stage startups, and because they're both early stage and not making money at the level I need them to, ultimately. Um, to pay the mortgage, I work as a consultant, um, you know, again, in, in the area of brand building, business innovation, and I do public speaking um, as well. Yeah, yeah, you're quite well known for your public speaking and very uh, electrifying, I must say. Thank you. <laughs> From what I've seen. Well, that, that's a fascinating story. And, and where does the theatre fit into that? Oh, no, th- th- that was where I began my career. Because, ah, okay. um, I read English at Oxford University, uh-huh. and um, Oxford has a very thriving student drama scene. And so um, I did, you know, lots of theatre there. And and I became a theatre marketing and publicity officer for several years after I graduated, until I got completely fed up with working every hour God gave me and earning chicken feed. Yeah. At which point I <clears throat> sold out the establishment and went to advertising. Yeah. Um, which was driven by, um, at the time, I was um, working as um, theatre marketing officer for a theatre called The Everyman in Liverpool. And part of my job was to give talks about the theatre, to promote it. So I gave a talk to a bunch of women outside Liverpool, and afterwards one of them came up to me and said, young lady, you could sell a fridge to an Eskimo. And I thought, okay, that is the universe telling me time to give this up and go into advertising. And so I did. <laughs> okay. It's a good thing you didn't say plastics. Plastics. <laughs> young lady. <laughs> He'd be selling plastics to Eskimos. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I don't even know where to go from there. Oxford. I have a friend who was at Oxford. I wonder if it was the same time. Andrew Harvey. Does that name ring a bell? Um... No? No, I'm afraid not. He was at All Souls. He was Auden's lover. Just, oh, just at the end of Auden's life. Wow. Um, yeah. Gosh, he, he was sort of a big shot. Right. And then he was the youngest person to ever be a Don at Oxford. He was 21. He was a full Don Good at God, Oxford. Good God, that is extraordinary. Yeah. Heavens he, above. Yeah, he's he's a he's a, an interesting guy. Wow. I think he told me his godmother was Indira Gandhi. Like, you talk about connected, nice. you know? Well, well, I actually, I went to Somerville um, College, which is um, where Margaret Thatcher and Indira uh, Gandhi went. In fact. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I think you can't go to Oxford without knowing lots of famous, important people. It's sort well, of well, part I, of I the appeal. I don't know that many, actually. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> I'm sure you met them over the years since then. Were you married at, at some point there? Was there a midlife um, no, crisis? Wasn't um, Absolutely not. I uh, have never wanted to be married. Um, ah, okay. I, Interesting. I have, I've never seen marriage as an end goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never wanted children, um, which makes that um, decision even, even easier. Yeah. And um, I'm very open about that because... Our society does not present enough role models for women yeah. of different ways to live, right. where many women, I believe, would be much happier if they felt they had more choices open to them versus this enormous pressure to be a wife and a mother. So I'm enormously grateful that I always knew I didn't want to have children as opposed to finding out the hard way by having them. And um, I, could, I could not be happier um, as a childless single woman. You know, I'm, I'm the same, except for the woman part. Um, I never... I never wanted to have kids and that opens up so many opportunities if you know that and you accept that at an early age then i mean in my case i never really had to worry about money i never had to worry about stability because hey if you know i could take risks if it doesn't work out well i'm the only one who gets screwed here you know i don't have you know innocent vulnerable people who have to pay the price so it opens up a whole different kind of life to you um, in terms of movement and risk taking and so on Uh, you know people who do want to have kids who are really clear about it a friend of mine, when I started writing Sex at Dawn, a, a guy I know in publishing said to me, um, no one should ever write a book unless they absolutely have to. And I think that's the way having kids should be. <laughs> like, if you're unsure, don't. But, you know? but, but, but the problem with that is that there is enormous societal pressure right. to have children yeah. to, to the extent that people don't even think about it. They just assume it's what they should do. Right. And, you know, I still find that even now, when people ask me if I have children and I say no, I quite often get one of two reactions. Either pity, mm-hmm. oh, the poor dear thing never met a man yeah. who actually wanted her to have his children. Didn't work out. Or yeah. horror. <gasps> A woman who doesn't want kids. Oh, my God, how unnatural. <laughs> um, and, in fact, I thought, uh, for years, I used to say to my friends, one day I will write a book that will be mandatory reading for anybody, man or woman, who is thinking of having children, which will basically um, lay out very realistically exactly what it's like to have kids. Because um, many of the parenting books um, out there in the market are realistic about what you encounter, but they all come from a place of having children's a joy and a blessing, and of course you should have them. 
and, and, so, and so I used to say this to friends for years, and then last year, Jessica Valenti wrote that book. So I cannot recommend too highly a book called Why Have Kids by Jessica Valenti, who is a young woman who is a mother, and it's just a wonderful, very well-researched, very objective book that lays out the case both for and against very, very clear-sightedly, and I recommend to everybody they read that book before having children. Are you familiar with uh, Louis C.K.? Oh, yeah, the yeah, comedian. Yeah. He does a great bit where he says, you know, he says, my, my two daughters are the, the love of my life. That You know, I love everything about them. I wake up every morning, you know, can't wait to be with them. And, and every night I go to sleep wishing to hell I'd never had them. You know, it's yeah, like yeah, absolutely. there are yeah. two sides yeah. to it. Yeah, precisely. And they're very, very, both very extreme. <laughs> Casilda's over there using your mirror. That's fine. <laughs> I can't, you know, as much as we get into the conversation, I can't forget where I am here. I and mean, this is incredible. Is this, the, the, there's a painting behind you, looks like you have several by the same artist, that sort of looks like... I mean, it's there's it's in a museum. There's a Henry Moore sculpture in the foreground, a Picasso in the back. A, is that a Botero? So, uh, um, so, um, so the, um, those are a series of paintings done by my very very dear, very old friend David Piddock, um, who is an artist who works out of London, uh-huh. um, whom I've known for a very long time. Um, and th- this is a series of paintings he did, which are fantasy art galleries. Uh-huh. So each one features recognisable works of art, although you would not find them together in one place because they're all you know in, in real life they're all in different galleries and they're even and so, fragments like uh, the woman here isn't that the woman from um what, what is it american with the pitchfork oh, right. oh yeah no, uh, um, yeah no, uh, um, no it's not um it, it's not deliberately um oh, but, okay. but, uh, but, but he, he just put a number of um a, a number of interesting figures doing weird things in in with the painting fantastic and I, just, I just really like them yeah well i can see why because you've got all the different styles within the yeah. one painting it's fantastic yeah um you know you were talking about women and 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 opportunities and and feeling the options that are open to them in life do you feel as i do that we're at a tipping point in american culture when it comes to not only sexuality but so many things there's a line we quote in sex Adon from arthur miller where he said an era can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted and I kind of feel like we're at a moment where virtually every basic illusion of not only American society, but I would say Western capitalist society is exhausted. Like the illusion that the banking system is a conservative um you know, uh, like a, a place, a safe place for your money that all they're doing is, assi- you know, whatever, assisting, blah, 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 that government is responsible and, and puts the the interests of the country above individual interests, you know, that uh, sports has some sort of integrity. I mean, every, it seems to me like every institution we look at has been exposed as corrupt. The Catholic Church, you know, <laughs> sterling example of that. So, I, I feel like we're at this incredible moment where everything is changing so rapidly. You know, the fact that uh, your project is taking off, is going viral as it is. People are responding to sort of reacting against the pornific what's the word there? Pornification? Pornification. Pornification. <laughs> of of uh, sexuality, right? I mean, that that's... Um, so did you feel that? Do you feel like, like there's an energy in the air that you haven't well, felt before? Well, so, so first of all, I would say um, that's absolutely right. Um, although it, it takes a very, very long time to make change happen because Clay Shirky put it very well when he said, institutions have a vested interest in perpetuating the problems to which they are the solution. And that's exactly the old world order stranglehold that every industry sector and government is, is the in. The defense and, industry, and, looking yeah. for war. Yeah. So, so it can take a very long time for all of that to, to, to be worked through. That's, yep. Could you say that again? That's a fantastic quote. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, and, and it's, um, it's um, you know, one of my internet heroes, Clay Shirky. Clay Shirky. Who said, um, institutions have a vested interest in perpetuating the problems to which they are the solution. The war on drugs. Uh, yeah. yeah, the, the endless and, and, and then the other thing I would say is, um, uh, and this particularly pertains to um, what I'm doing, 
I cannot even begin to tell you how hard it is to make um, make love not porn TV happen, and that's because. Every obstacle an entrepreneur with a tech startup encounters have a tech startup dealing with sex triple them. <clears throat> Every single piece of business infrastructure any other venture can take for granted, we can't because the small print always says no adult content. So in a world where Silicon Valley, and I use that as a catch-all for the tech community, the tech world, Silicon Valley encourages innovation and disruption in every other area of our lives, except this one, sex. Um, that's why um, I'm fighting the battle I'm fighting um, to build Make Love Not Porn TV very publicly on behalf of all of us who believe you can change the world through sex. And that's why I wrote an open letter to David Cameron, the British Prime Minister, um, which Wired UK published two weeks ago, um, where the headline was, Dear David Cameron, don't block porn, disrupt it. The answer to everything that worries people about sex and porn is not to shut down, censor, clamp down, block, repress. The answer is to open up. Open up the dialogue, open up the ability for entrepreneurs to change the world of sex and porn for the better, open up the ability for people like me and my team to do business on the same terms and conditions as everybody else. I mean, literally, um, every single thing that we have to do to build our business... um, uh, uh, um, I cannot find a bank anywhere in the world that will allow me to open a business bank account for a business that has the word porn in the name and that does what we do. Our single biggest operational challenge has been putting our payments infrastructure in place. Um, because we're adult content, PayPal won't work with us, Amazon won't, none of the mainstream credit card processors will. Even things like finding an email partner to send out our membership emails, we went through five or six who wouldn't touch adult content, won't, won't handle emails from a, you know, and even with um, the firm we finally ended up with, um, the, um, that was sort of um, fenced around with lots of stipulations, we're going to have to see how many spam reports we get, etc., etc. Um, Everything um, makes it more difficult. The enormous irony is that I believe you can change the world through sex. My team and I are working to make sex better for all of us. The world of tech and business is doing everything it possibly can to stop us. Where's the sense in that? Not much that I can see, but but I'm surprised to hear you say that because um, it it seems like the internet uh, infrastructure for for payment control and and uh, you know. Um, uh, server farms and all these things set up for porn. Porn is a huge part of the internet, isn't it? Uh, uh, well, um, so um, so first of all, um, we 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 can't work with adult industry specific partners for several reasons. Um, the first is that. Um, when we embarked on, on um, Make Love Not Porn TV, I, I said to my team, the single most important thing about any business partner we work with before anything else is that they have to get what we're doing, believe in it, support it, and want to help make it happen. Otherwise, it's mm. going to be too hard to work together. Mm. When I talk to adult industry-specific payment partners, their response is, yeah, yeah, social mission, social values, blah, blah, you're porn like all the rest. That is not the right foundation for the kind of business relationships that we want to build. Secondly, um, we, we need those partnerships to support our business model. Because the adult industry has nowhere else to go, for all the reasons I've talked about, and because money talks in that world, um, the rates are extortionate. So the way it works with with adult-specific payment um, processes is usually I mean, it's a stepped menu. So it's something like, you know, if you put zero to so many thousands of dollars to us a month, the rate is 15%. You know, and then it gets marginally better. Um, our revenue-sharing business model is predicated on um, we split the income with you, our Make Love Not Porn star, 50-50, net a small amount to cover hosting and transaction fees. We need those transaction fees to be as low as possible, i.e. mainstream level, 3 to 3.5%. Right. That's a huge gap. Right. Okay? It doesn't, doesn't support our business model. That's and then the, thir- the third reason is, very ironically, um, we're too high risk for them. So I've literally spoken to an adult payment division where the guy said to me, you're a startup. No track record, no cash flow, no funds, no assets. You are too high risk for us to work with. What's the risk? Lawsuits? Um, to, uh, um, no, the, uh, the risk... Well, here's the enormous irony. Um, the, the single thing that people are most worried about when it pertains to um, porn and adult payment processing um, is chargebacks. Chargebacks are what happens when, for example... 
the wife says to the husband, oh, darling, you know, there's this really odd charge on our shared credit card. And the husband goes, oh, I have no idea what that is. That's fraud, that is. We're not paying that. That's a chargeback, okay? Uh, And and that is the bane of the adult industry, um, for obvious reasons. Because of what we are at Make Love Not Porn, we have a zero chargeback record. We are socially acceptable, socially shareable, real-world sex. Our community is built around people who believe in having a more open, honest dialogue around sex. We, we, we have no chargebacks. Yeah. But, but unfortunately, we are classified as adult content, and the knee-jerk reaction is, you know, you're like all the rest. And, and so, you know, th- th- this, this is another reason why um, I'm fighting this battle very publicly. I gave a talk at South by Southwest back in March on the future of porn, um, where I talked about this issue. Um, because the the dynamic that drives that um, and the dynamic that drives an awful lot of people's attitudes to sex is the one that, that can best be characterised as fear of what everybody else will think. So um, when I was trying to get Make Love Not TV funded, I had enormous difficulty. I pitched this venture for two years um, before, I, before I found funding. And, and that's very ironic because, in theory, I should have been every venture capitalist and investor's wet dream, literally. I have an idea enabled by technology designed to disrupt a sector worth billions of dollars in a way that is both socially beneficial and potentially very lucrative. In theory, you know, that absolutely, you know, is Silicon Valley's triple whammy. Um, in practice, because that sector is porn and the social benefit of sexuality, no VC would come near me. And the few I talked to, um, and I only selected VCs to pitch to who were, were people I knew, who were visionary, they would say to me, Cindy, phenomenal concept. You know, I get it. I love it. Um, all the other partners in my firm won't. The investors in our fund won't. And this is people's attitude when it comes to sex and changing anything around sex. It's not what they think. It is fear of what everybody else will think. And that, and that, that is massively inhibiting. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. There's no question that that's a huge uh, stumbling block for any sort of uh, revolutionary movement in sexuality. But why do you think sex is so so difficult? I mean, as you say, any other uh, area where you where you had those different qualities in an investment, you know, that you're disrupting a dominant technology, and you know your startup costs are quite low, and you know actually your 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 product is being produced by other people. You're not even your production costs are virtually nothing. I mean, in terms of capitalist uh, requirements, you've got everything, all the ducks in a row. Why? What is it about sex? Why is sex so difficult to change? Do you think? Oh, centuries of socio-cultural conditioning to do with repression, religion. You know, to, um, I mean, I, I can't. That's way too large a theme for, for, for me to unpack. Um, um, So I'm not, um, I don't concern myself with why, I concern myself with changing it. Um, Our ultimate end goal for MakeLoveNotPorn.tv, and this is a very big goal, it'll take a very long time, but if I and my team achieve our social mission, the ultimate corollary of success for us is that one day, nobody should ever have to feel ashamed or embarrassed ever again about having a naked photograph or a sex tape of themselves posted on the internet, (sighs) because it's simply just the natural human part of who we all are. Isn't that where we're going? Aren't we going there anyway? No, um, no, we're not. because Because um, when you take the shame and embarrassment out of sex, you diffuse revenge porn. You diffuse many things that have the power to make human beings very, very unhappy. Um, but what is happening at the moment is the wrong kind of phenomenon. So, um, so I, I regularly get called by journalists with a particular theme. Um, the call goes something like this. Oh, so Cindy, I'm writing a story on the explosion of porn on fill in the gap here. Tumblr, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Right. Um, can I ask you, you know, do you think this is a problem that every social media platform encounters when it hits a certain size? And what do you think they can do right. about it? Assuming it's a problem. So I, yeah. I have two responses. Um, my first response is, I think it's a problem. They think it's a problem. Yeah. Because it is a huge compliment to any social media platform when the community feels comfortable enough to self-identify and self-express sexually um, on it. And by the way, what Tumblr and Instagram call porn is any nudity, any sexual self-expression. Yeah, breastfeeding. uh, Yeah. And secondly, I go... 
But I love they think it's a problem because come over here. Yeah. Make Love Not Porn TV is for anyone who's ever been kicked off Tumblr or Instagram for doing what is completely natural to all of us. Yeah. And so, you know, the role we play, I explain to people, um, think about all of those celebrations of relationships that currently crop up every day in your Facebook timeline. You know, those engagement announcements, wedding photos, lovey-dovey couple of things. <laughs> all we're doing at Make Love Not Porn is we're providing a platform to celebrate that last era of human relationships nobody else will let you. Yeah. The motivations are exactly the same, by the way. They range from, you know, um, whereas on Facebook it would be, we're madly in love and we're celebrating our love by showing you, you know, we're cuddling under a tree and whatever. Um, and here on Make Love Not Porn TV, we're madly in love and therefore we have a phenomenal sex life and we're celebrating that. Um, all the way through to, well, I think I'm pretty hot shit in bed, get out of this. You know, I mean, it's all the same dynamics that play out in social media in this, in this last area that everybody else will not allow you to actually share in any form whatsoever. And I think that, um, you know, one of the um, interesting things about the extraordinary response that MakeLoveNotPorn.com has received is that um, MakeLoveNotPorn.com is a manifestation of me. And what I mean by that is um, it's very straightforward, honest, simple, down-to-earth, utterly non-judgmental, and it has a sense of humour. We never get to have conversations about sex within all of those parameters. Mm. And when we do, when you find a safe space um, where you can do that, extraordinary things happen. And so um, what we're doing with, um, with, with Make Love Not Porn TV is, um, and again, because we're so new, people um, have some trouble understanding this, um, we play a different role to porn. So we're not simply masturbatory material. I mean, we obviously are that too. We're thrilled to be that. But we are a fascinating glimpse into the real, raw, intimate sex lives of real people. Mm. Our core value proposition resides in the fact that everybody wants to know what everybody else is really doing in bed, and nobody does. And we're showing them. And the reason we're showing them um, is best summed up by the response of one of our younger male users who said to us, watching porn makes me want to jerk off. Watching your videos makes me want to have sex. So what we're doing is we're doing what every other social media platform does, which is we're connecting people. We are opening up the dialogue, because great sex is born out of great communication, to improve sexual relationships, to improve relationships, to improve lives, to improve happiness. And that's hugely important, especially for young people. As you say, people who are learning about sex through porn are, you know, that's like learning about yeah, whatever, learning about baseball by watching the Yankees. Like, you know, that's mm. so far away from the mm. way most people actually experience mm. things. Are you familiar? Do you know Dan Savage personally? Of course, yep, yep, yeah. yep. No, we, we, Dan and I have a big mutual fan club going. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll mm. bet. Yeah, he's, he's wonderful. Um, but but it reminds me what you're doing uh, with Make Love Not Porn TV reminds me a lot of what Dan's been doing for years, which is trying oh. to get people to to relate, especially young people who are starting out in in their lives and trying to get them to compare their own experience to the reality of other people's mm. experience, as opposed mm. to some artificial uh, exaggeration or you know filtered concoction that's presented in pornography. Do you think is there a place for performative pornography? Pornography in your vision? Oh, um, oh my God! Of course, uh, uh, I mean, there's a place of performative pornography generally, but one of the things that um, concerns me is so. I hate the way that people refer to porn as one big amorphous homogenous mass, all the same. Mm. That's like referring to literature as one big amorphous homogenous mass. That's all the same. Right. You know, porn embraces many different styles, genres, approaches. Um, but the difficulty is that you know. Um, because we don't talk about sex, we don't talk about porn. Porn exists in a parallel universe, a shadowy other world. Porn therefore lacks many of the tools that we use to improve our lives in other areas. Porn lacks curation. There is no socially acceptable Yelp of porn. And that's because it's perfectly okay to come in to the office on a Monday morning, stand by the water cooler and go... I'm really bored of all the restaurants I've been eating at lately. Who knows a new restaurant? It's not okay to come in and go, I'm really bored of all the porn I've been watching. Who knows some new porn? And, 
and people need to navigate that world. Mm. And I mean, obviously, there are sites that curate porn, but, but they're porn sites. There is no socially acceptable. Actually, this is how I find my way to something that I would really enjoy watching versus, you know, most most kids go straight to YouPorn, Pornhub, the freebie tube sites, uh, sites and stay there. And, and that's not good. Mm. And it's particularly not good because, you know... Um, the, the average age at which children are first exposed to hardcore porn online today is eight. And in fact, a global survey done earlier this year suggests that age has fallen to six. And, and what I have to explain to people um, often is um, this is not because eight-year-olds or six-year-olds go looking for porn. They don't. It's a function of what somebody shows them on their cell phone in the playground, what happens when you go around to the neighbor's house, because it doesn't matter what parental controls you have in place at home, your kids live their lives in other places, or because this is the most wired generation ever. Mm. An eight-year-old does something really cute and innocent. They learn a new naughty word and they Google it. Penis! <laughs> One or two clicks away is something they're expected to find. Um, a father wrote to me on Facebook some months back, um, a complete stranger, I don't know him. He wrote to say, my wife and I cannot thank you enough for what you're doing. He said, we have a ten-year-old son and we decided it was time to have the sex talk. So I sat down with him and he said to me, Daddy, why do men wear masks when they're having sex? This guy wrote and said, you know, we have parental controls on our iPad and my 10-year-old son has somehow managed to find his way to a site where men wear masks when they're having sex. He said, I, I can't thank you enough for what you're doing. When he's older, we're going to send him to your site. And so, you know, less than... Uh, this is a very data-free area. By my estimation, probably less than 5% of parents ever talk to their children about sex. And back in my day, if you were one of those less than 5% of parents prepared to actually have the conversation, the conversation used to be purely logistical. The conversation used to be, this goes into this, when a man loves a woman, the birds and the bees. The conversation to have today as a parent goes, darling, we know you're online, and we know you're looking at hardcore porn, and we just need to explain to you all women like being tied up, bound, gang-banged, raped, choked, and have men come all over then. And actually, not all men like doing that either. 100% of parents not having that conversation. That's why I make love not porn. And that's why I actually say to parents, you cannot begin this conversation too early in the home, because that's where it has to start. Your child is going to see hardcore porn years and years and years before they ever have their first sexual experience. And as I said at the start of our discussion, the issue is not porn. The issue is when that fact converges with our reluctance to talk openly and realistically about sex. That's the problem. Fantastic. You, you sort of sum it up so well there. I'm, I'm tempted to just stop with that. that that's a f- fantastic summary of, of the whole conversation and the mission. But I wanted to ask you, there's one thing that was in the sure. back of my head. Yeah. It, was, there, was there something early in your life? Was, did you know you were headed for this at some point? Oh, my was, God, no, not in the slightest. No? Um, this is a complete and total accident. <laughs> I never Because you seem out. sort of, ma- you know, you said the site is, is uh, an iteration of you, a reflection of your character, your personality. Well, what it reflects is the fact that when I come across something I feel strongly about, I do something about it. You go for it. I'm a very yeah. action-oriented person, which is actually what my other startup, If We Ran the World, is all about, turning good intentions into action. If We Ran the if World. If We Ran the World, uh-huh. yeah. And um, so um, I very coincidentally ended up with two startups are the two sides of me. If We Ran the World is my professional side, Make Love Not Porn is my personal side. We Ran the World is my attempt to redesign the future of business, and Make Love Not Porn is my attempt to redesign the future of sex. Oh. And there is tremendous crossover, because If We Ran the World reflects the fact that I believe the future of business is about doing good and making money simultaneously. Um, I believe the business model of the future should be shared values plus shared action equals shared profit. Financial profit and social profit. And that's the business model that I designed Make Love Not Porn around. Shared value plus shared action right. equals shared profit. That's fantastic. So, so you've got theory and practice, actually. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 absolutely. And in fact, whenever I speak in public, and I speak across a whole range of business sectors, I explain to the audience I'm not one of those speakers who pontificates from the stage. Everything I talk about, I'm doing. I'm trying it. I'm failing at it. I'm experimenting. I'm picking myself up. I'm trying it again. But um, I, I live my own beliefs and philosophies, and, and that's how I've ended up doing what I'm doing. 
Fantastic. Where can people go? Sex, not porn. Yep. Um, no, make love, not yep. porn. Um, so, so I would love anybody listening to, to this podcast, if they support our aims, please help us because we fight a battle every day to build this business. Go to makelovenotporn.com to see Porn World versus Real World and go to makelovenotporn.tv to sign up and rent Real World sex videos. And by the way, please consider sharing your own Real World sex and submitting it as well. <laughs> yeah, and let me know when you do and I'll tweet it out and fantastic and, i mean i told you before we started recording people have been sending us naked photos Ooh. of themselves with our book so it's, One step it's further. yeah it's a yeah. small step at that. absolutely listen thank you so much for doing this cindy it's it's fantastic to to be here in your space and and get to know a little bit more about you it's a total pleasure thank you Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time? Think about your reputation Soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up Or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Think about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.